As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome along to another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable. I'm Peter Byram, and this week we're going back to an episode from early 2015. In 1960, physicist Eugene Wigner wrote a paper on the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Christian philosopher William Lane Craig, otherwise known as Bill Craig to his friends and this show, was developing arguments concerning the applicability of mathematics as evidence for God as part of his wider research on abstract objects. So Bill interacted with atheist agnostic philosopher Daniel Kame on whether the remarkable ability of maths to describe the universe we live in is evidence for a transcendent designer. And before we jump in, just a reminder that this week is your chance to watch the new episode, episode 3 of season 5 of The Big Conversation, a whole week early. It's going to be released on July the 7th, but if you register at thebigconversation.show, we will send you an email with a special link to watch the episode from June 30th instead. The episode will feature Christian author Nick Spencer and atheist science writer and broadcaster Philip Ball debating the question of whether science and religion can tell us what it means to be human. It's a fascinating episode. So if you want to watch that a week early, starting from this week, then sign up at thebigconversation.show. For now, let's jump in and join William Lane Craig, Daniel Kame and Justin Briley. You're unbelievable. Well, today on Unbelievable, we're asking, does the uncanny effectiveness of mathematics provide evidence for God? Two fabulous guests join me on the programme today. Dr. William Lane Craig, known to many as simply Bill, is a noted Christian philosopher and heads up the apologetics ministry Reasonable Faith. And our other guest is Dr. Daniel Kame, philosophy lecturer at the University of Hull. He's a sceptical agnostic, but he's been appreciative of Bill's contributions to the philosophy of religion over the last few years. Uh, they both join me today on the programme to talk about this interesting issue of the uh, issue of mathematics and God. Uh, a very warm welcome to you both, gentlemen. Thank you, Justin. Great to have you here. Um, let's come to you first of all, Bill. Uh, we obviously saw you over in the UK back in July when you joined me for the Unbelievable Conference. But um, you've been working on some, some fairly interesting stuff, haven't you? Uh, do you want to just give us an idea of, of what you've been burrowing into in the last year or so? Sure. I have been reading extensively for several years now in the philosophy of mathematics with a view toward understanding the existence of mathematical objects like numbers and sets and functions and other uh, abstract objects and asking how these relate to God. Um, are they created by God? Are they ideas in the mind of God? Or do they simply not exist at all? Do they exist independently of God? So that's been the question that I've been exploring. And in the course of this study, um, this question that you raised today kept coming up, namely the applicability of mathematics to the physical world. And this is one of the most famous problems in the philosophy of mathematics, what the physicist Eugene Wigner called the uncanny um, effectiveness of mathematics, the ability to describe the physical world through mathematics. And, and this is a puzzle because whether these mathematical objects like numbers and functions and so forth are 
abstract entities that exist beyond time and space and are causally impotent, or whether you think of them as just useful fictions, it's very difficult to understand the relationship between these and math uh, and physical reality and why physical reality should be so describable it it is a, an extraordinary thing and and as you say obviously your studies have have kind of brought this question up again and again i've noticed in fact before we get to kind of really nailing down what this argument is as it relates to the existence of god you've been using it more for instance in public debates in presentations on the existence of god yes it it sort of thrust itself upon me as i say this wasn't a question that i initially intended to explore but as i looked at the views of both realists and anti-realists about mathematical objects, it was very evident to me that neither of these camps was able to provide any sort of an explanation of mathematics applicability to the physical world. And this was self-confessed. They Mm. were self-confessedly at a loss to explain why mathematics is applicable to the physical world, whether you're a realist or an anti-realist, and it occurred to me that theism enjoyed a considerable advantage in this respect, that the theist has explanatory resources that are not available to the naturalist, whether he be a realist or an anti-realist. And so that's how I I came upon this argument and began to float it in um, debates and public lectures to see how people might respond. Um, well, I'm looking forward to our discussion here today. Sure. Well, we, and we'll get to, to to kind of nailing down on some of those terms you're using there, realist and anti-realist, and how that that links into the discussion today. But it's great to have you back on the program today, Bill. Um, and you. and if you want to find out more about Bill, reasonablefaith.org is where you can find loads of his writing and uh, feedback, podcast, and more. Um, also, a great pleasure to welcome onto the program today, Dr. Daniel Kame. Hello, Daniel. Hi, Justin. It's great to have you on, um, Daniel. We first of all kind of got to know each other. At least a little back in 2011 when when Bill came over to the UK for a tour and uh, and it was interesting at that time um, even as a skeptical agnostic slash atheist um, you were quite supportive actually of what Bill was aiming to do in opening up these questions around God and so on so so you're obviously evidently very open to this kind of dialogue and discussion yeah I am I mean I'm I, I would describe myself I suppose as um, a skeptical agnostic as you said in your introduction but I kind of oscillate between uh, varying degrees of skepticism, I suppose. But it was worrying about the question of the existence of God that really got me interested in philosophy as a teenager. And uh, I still regard it as a question of vital importance. But yes, um, my own position is one of agnosticism. Although having said that, I think that uh, some of the traditional arguments for the existence of God, in particular the argument from the fine-tuning of the universe, um, deserve to be taken more seriously than they are by a lot of academic philosophers. And, and I, I also think that it can be you know, very difficult to live with the, you know, uh, what you might call the existential implications of an atheistic worldview, and that if one actually tries to live with the consequences of atheism, that this can be kind of uh, existentially very difficult. And so, uh, in a certain sense, in order to be a functional life-affirming, self-affirming agent, one must, in the end, have recourse to various kinds of illusions. And I suppose that these might form the basis for a pragmatic argument, not an argument for the existence of God, but an argument for the rationality of belief in God, even if there's no or insufficient evidence that he exists. So, yeah, I'm I'm a skeptic, but I'm sympathetic to the conclusions of theism and to, you know, the religious sensibility, as it were, that is... To seeing the world in religious terms, mm. do so. In that sense, you sound like you're an atheist who who isn't exactly, um, you know, an evangelistic one in the sense of of believing atheism really is the the, the best story no, going no, out. No, I mean, there. I tried. I certainly try to remain open minded about the possibility that I might be completely wrong in my scepticism, <laughs> and I certainly don't claim to know that atheism is true. And I remain open to the possibility that some form of theism, or perhaps more likely deism, you know, deism being the view that God created the universe, but then kind of Mm. left it to his own devices, open to the possibility that that might be true. For all I know, the universe was indeed created by some kind of divine intelligence, or may even itself be some form of divine intelligence. Um, 
so yeah, I'm I'm skeptical, but I'm but I try to remain open minded. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's, it's great to have you on the program today. If people want to find out more about you, I know you have a, a, a sort of faculty page at the University of Hull's website as well. And uh, it'd be interesting to really to get your your responses to this particular issue of the applicability of mathematics and whether that provides evidence for God. Um, if you're interested in getting in touch yourself, listening today, and you'd like your thoughts uh, spelt out on the program, why not send me an email and I'll do my best to read as many of those in forthcoming editions of the program. You can. Email unbelievable at premier.org.uk. You can also uh, get in touch via the Facebook and Twitter accounts at unbelievablejb or facebook.com slash unbelievablejb to follow us on Facebook. And of course, all those links and more, plus today's program and more resources from the website of Unbelievable. That's premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Um, Bill, let's begin uh, as we unpack this topic by getting you to, to kind of give briefly at least what this argument is as, as it provides evidence for God in your view. Can you give us a, a basic rundown on the argument from the applicability of mathematics? Well, in a sense, it is a sort of version of the fine-tuning argument that mm. Daniel mentioned, except it's not fine-tuning of physical constants and quantities, but the mathematical nature of the physical world. It's extraordinary that the physical world embodies or instantiates this incredibly complex mathematical structure that it didn't have to exhibit. And so one wonders, well, what is the explanation of this? And The difficulty here is that if you're, say, a realist and you believe there are mathematical objects like numbers and sets and so forth, these things are typically regarded as existing beyond time and space and being causally a feat. That is to say, they have no causal powers. The number seven, for example, doesn't cause anything. So it's not as though the mathematical realm could have some sort of impact upon the physical world to structure it Mm. in accord with mathematics. And if you take an anti-realist view, that is to say you think that these mathematical objects don't really exist, they're just useful fictions, um, like, um, oh, ideal points at infinity, or frictionless planes, or... Um, ideal gases and liquids that are used in scientific theories. These are just useful fictions. Well, then, again, it becomes mysterious how then the world would be structured according to these fictions. Why would the world have the mathematical nature that it does? Can I and just here's quickly where the can, argument for theism then uh, comes in. Uh, can I just quickly before we get oh, to that yes, bill just just so so when it comes to this realist and anti-realist view of maths yeah. that the realist as it were believes that there is if you like out there objectively this realm of um things that exist but they they they're non-causal they they're sort of um they just exist and, and we we can't say that much more about them the anti That's precisely right. Yeah. These are mind independent objects they are just as real as electrons and neutrons and protons they're independent of us uh-huh. they were there before we got here and and, and um, that that kind of comes down from plato at some level doesn't it a little bit the, yes, the idea this of a, is a platonic yeah, view yeah. and so realism sometimes goes by the name platonism yes and, and then the anti-realist view then essentially sees these these objects, the mathematical realm, as being something we've thought up and kind of laid, yes. laid on the universe, but it's not actually out there as such. Right, that's exactly right. And, and so in that sense, if you're a realist, when we do maths or, or come up with hypotheses and so on, we're kind of discovering what's already out there at that level. Yes, yeah. and that raises other questions <laughs> in the philosophy of mathematics, namely how we could have access to mm. this realm so as to know what it's like. But that's a different question sure, sure. than the question of okay. applicability. So, so, but whether we're realist or anti-realist about this mathematical realm, how does this all tie in, as far as you're concerned, to, to evidence for God? Well, just this. Whether you're a realist or an anti-realist, as I've explained, the applicability of mathematics to the world 
seems to be, in the words of the philosopher of mathematics, Mary Lang, a happy coincidence. Mm. There isn't any sort of explanation for it. But if you're a theist, then you uh, can believe that God has built the physical world on the mathematical structure that he had in mind. And you can say that whether you're a realist or an anti-realist. If you are a realist like Plato, then you can say that God looked to these abstract objects as his pattern and then built the world on the pattern of these abstract objects. And Plato, in fact, did believe something like that, as he says in his dialogue, the Timaeus. On the other hand, if you think these abstract objects are just fictional, that they're just made up in your mind, well, then you could hold that God has these ideas, he conceives these things, and then built the world according to that blueprint that he had in mind. And this was the view of the ancient Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria, who thought that the Platonic realm of ideas really were thoughts in the divine mind, and God has then built the world on that structure. So whether you're a realist or an anti-realist, if you're a theist, if you believe in God, Mm. you have the explanatory resources to explain what otherwise seems to be a complete mystery, namely the applicability of mathematics to the physical world. And and, and if you're a naturalist, an atheist, you, you simply have to, at some level, say it's a mystery or it's a very, very lucky coincidence. It seems to me that that's correct. Yes, mm. I haven't seen any sort of explanation. And, and, and in your view, the, the, the theistic explanation, God, is a, a better explanation than simply saying, you know, we don't know or, 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 or it's a happy coincidence. Right, because the structure of the math or the mathematical structure of the physical world is so complex. Mm. It, it is so arcane that it just cries out for some sort of explanation rather than just saying, well, that's just the way it happened to be. Well, that's a great introduction to, to the way that this argument sort of comes together, Bill. And, and so we're going to get a response now from, from Daniel on that. You've heard the argument. You've, you've looked into it yourself, I know. Um, what's your primary response to this? It does seem like a, an interesting one, doesn't it? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is that I entirely agree with Bill that there is a puzzle here with respect to you know, the way in which matter or the physical universe seems to comply to the rules of maths. That is, you know, the fact that mathematical concepts adequately describe and uh, predict the law-governed behavior of physical phenomena. Um, And particularly striking, here are cases where the math seems to be playing a a crucial role in making predictions. So, for example, it's on the basis of equations alone that Maxwell was able to predict the uh, existence of electromagnetic radiation. So the the mystery here is not just the, the extraordinary appropriateness of maths for the formulation of physical theories. It's also uh, the role that mathematics plays in the very discovery of those theories. Mm, mm. But, um, but I take it that you know, some applications of mathematics are going to be unsurprising. So, for example, uh, if I have one apple in one hand and another apple in my other hand, I take it that no one's going to be surprised that I've got two apples. And this is obviously just an application of 1 plus 1 equals 2. So you know, here we've got a mathematical truth that applies to the physical world, and I don't, um, you know, nobody feels that this needs explaining. Mm. Um, so I suppose, you know, the the, the problem is uh, is supposed to arise in relation to a particular kind of higher level mathematics, where um, uh, the applicability of mathematics to the physical world starts to look mysterious when you start introducing mathematical concepts that have very little or uh, no direct physical meaning or no obvious physical interpretation. So mm. uh, things like negative numbers, uh, imaginary numbers, like the square root of minus one, um, n-dimensional spaces. So you know we, we seem to live in a three-dimensional world, but there are mathematical models that are four-dimensional, five-dimensional, uh, even 11-dimensional, and when that, the number of dimensions is unspecified, it's just generalized simply as n-dimensional. Now, with the introduction of concepts like these, uh, mathematics seems to move 
entirely beyond concepts that are suggested by experience. So there's nothing in our experience of the physical world that you know, corresponds to the concept of n-dimensional space or to the square root of minus one. So these mathematical concepts don't apply to anything in the concrete world. What's puzzling then is that often these concepts, you know, concepts that have no obvious or natural physical interpretation, nevertheless end up playing a very fundamental role mm. in physics. Um, so what, what's your explanation then, I guess, as, as an atheist, as a sceptical agnostic? Do, do you go down the route of happy coincidence or, or is there more to it than that? Well, I mean, my question, first of all, would be, um, you know, when, when Eugene Wigner in his original paper claimed that there's no rational explanation for the efficacy of mathematics for explaining facts about the empirical world, I mean, I'm wondering whether, whether Bill's argument is um, an inference to the best explanation. So is he positing God as the best explanation for the applicability of mathematics? So you know, is he saying a, that theism is more explanatorily robust with respect to the effectiveness of mathematics, more, more robust than any of the competing naturalistic hypotheses? Because there are naturalistic hypotheses which purport to explain the mm. applicability of mathematics. Or, or is is Bill making the stronger claim that there could, in principle, be no adequate naturalistic explanation for the effectiveness of maths? Well, let's let's ask let's ask Bill that uh, directly. Bill, what, what's your view on that? I don't have a hard and fast view. The way I've presented it, I think, is as an inference to the best explanation. Uh, and for listeners who aren't familiar with that terminology, the idea there is that the natural scientist, for example is confronted with a body of data that needs to be explained. And he will then construct a pool of live options for mm. explaining this data. And in inferring to the best explanation, he will pick that hypothesis from the pool of live options, which provides the best explanation of the data to be explained. And it does seem to me that theism would compete very favorably with any other explanation of the uh, applicability of mathematics to the physical world. So I have framed it as an inference to the best explanation. Mm. Yeah, Daniel. Okay, so, I mean, the question that then would arise, I suppose, is whether um, God really presents us with a good explanation and there we would need to think about what constitutes a good explanation um uh i mean what counts as a good explanation is a bone of contention in science and in the philosophy of science but a good explanation is usually supposed to be one that can be precisely specified uh one which identifies an underlying mechanism which would account for the phenomenon for which we're seeking an explanation um um, and so I would, uh, I mean, one criticism then of positing God as an explanation would be that it doesn't seem to specify, uh, an account of the underlying mechanism that's supposed to be at work here. I mean, to... is your worry that it's a bit of a catch-all explanation, God, in that sense? Well, that it doesn't have, um, some of the virtues that we would look for in a successful explanation. So to posit, to posit God as the explanation of the effectiveness of mathematics um, arguably lacks empirical content. So a good, a good explanation would be an informative one, but positing God as the explanation of the effectiveness of maths is in effect just to say that you know, an intelligent agent did something mm -hmm. at some time, somewhere, somehow, to bring about the effectiveness of maths. Now, that, that's not that's not terribly informative. It doesn't tell us how the effect doesn't tell us how the universe came to be amenable to description in mathematical terms. Um, just just a quick response to that, then, Bill, before we have to go to our first break. I think that the most important criterion for assessing what makes a good explanation would be explanatory power, and it does seem to me that theism has tremendous explanatory power with respect to the applicability of mathematics, because it postulates a mind um, as the creator of the physical universe who is free to create 
the physical universe having the structure that he has chosen. So that seems to me to be a very powerful explanation, even if it's a non-empirical one. I, I guess the problem we, we're getting is that, that at this point, you can't, as it were, explain the mathematical realm with mathematics because it's sort of that's what it is we're coming to inevitably metaphysical kind of a point at that point aren't we bill is is that the case yes this is a metaphysical explanation it's not an empirical explanation um but it 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 would be something that is beyond the physical in order to explain why the physical world is as as it is and i think as long as we're open to theism that this is something that deserves to be taken seriously we're going to take a quick break um and we'll we'll come back to this and allow daniel to uh, to respond as well um i want to i want to kind of open up this whole area though of of the, this remarkable universe we live in which seems so open to being described and modeled in mathematical terms uh, does that mean that there are these these this mathematical realm out there and and is god responsible for it those are the kinds of questions we're asking on unbelievable today Two very special guests join me today as we ask whether the effectiveness of mathematics provides evidence for God. Uh, William Lane Craig, known as Bill to many, uh, joins us on the programme. Dr. Daniel Kame, philosophy lecturer at the University of Hull, my other guest today. And uh, looking forward to your responses to today's programme as well. We'll be back here on the show that aims to get you thinking in just a moment. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Welcome back to the second part of today's programme. Um, a really unusual and, I think, interesting argument for the existence of God is under discussion today on Unbelievable. If you want to get in touch with the programme, by the way, do email me, unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Let me know what you think about today's topic. We have a number of uh, Christians and atheists who listen to the programme, and I know these kinds of programmes always uh, generate a great response. Uh, so today on the programme, William Lane Craig joins me. He's a noted Christian philosopher, heads up the ministry Reasonable Faith as well. Dr. Daniel Kame is a philosophy lecturer at the University of Hull. He's a sceptical agnostic, uh, but has been very appreciative of Bill's contribution to the philosophy of religion and says that, you know, he's willing to sort of certainly think through and 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 argue with the, the arguments that, that Bill makes. And uh, we've been hearing that already in the course of what we've been hearing. So um, we're talking about the, the uncanny effectiveness, effectively, of mathematics. Uh, and just to give a quote in full from Eugene Wigner, who was the physicist who first wrote this paper on the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. He says, the miracle of the appropriateness of the language of mathematics for the formulation of the laws of physics is a wonderful gift which we neither understand nor deserve. We should be grateful for it and hope that it will remain valid in future research and that it will extend, for better or for worse, to our pleasure, even though perhaps also to our bafflement, to wider branches of learning. Um, I mean, in that sense... Bill, do you think that I think that was probably written in the in the sixties that that paper originally? Do you think that still holds today with many physicists that they continue to see this extraordinary mapping of these? these oh yes, theories? that that is quite clear. As I say in my reading of the literature uh, over the last several years, this question just keeps coming up again and again, and people continue to express bafflement at it. it. It isn't as though there is some sort of competing explanation out there that is offered. It, it tends to just be 
re-expressions of the, the amazement that Wigner described. Um, so this, uh, along with the question of the indispensability of mathematics to doing science, are two of the most important and related questions in the philosophy of mathematics. Why is mathematics indispensable for science, and why is the physical world uh, amenable to mathematical application? Mm. So I think it does continue to be mysterious. I, I remember you used this argument possibly for the first time in a debate against uh, Alex Rosenberg at uh, Purdue University, as I remember it, his his response was something along the lines of, "Well, there may be much many more mathematical ideas out there than we than we know at this present um, time, and so so it's crazy to suggest that God is somehow responsible for it." What what was well, your his response? response to the argument was very weak. What he said is that the question of the applicability of mathematics pales by comparison to other questions in the philosophy of mathematics, such as how can we have cognitive access to the mathematical realm if it's really beyond space and time and causally impotent. Well, you can't solve one problem by saying there are more difficult problems. Um, That doesn't do anything to answer the question of the applicability of mathematics. And yet that was really all he had to offer. Um, Do you have anything to offer on this, Daniel? Uh, I mean, do do, do you want to, I I don't know, before we come back to the question of whether God is a, a good explanation, would you you know, opt to field any explanations for why there is this this effectiveness of mathematics as we see it? Um, well, <clears throat> uh, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, if you're looking for a naturalistic explanation hmm. for the effectiveness of mathematics, um, I mean, one possibility is that there's a naturalistic psychological explanation for the appearance that maths is so unreasonably effective. Mm. Um, I mean, so one possibility is that, uh, in fact, Wigner's original argument is really quite a poor one, and it's based entirely on a kind of selection effect. That's to say, he kind of cherry-picks examples where the mathematic does seem uh, miraculously or mysteriously to work out, as with uh, quantum mechanics, for example, and simply ignores the nearly infinite space of uh, physical and other phenomena that don't actually lend themselves to easy description in simple mathematical terms. Hmm. Um, I mean, another possibility is that we, when we're doing science, we select what we regard as the scientifically interesting aspects of reality precisely in virtue of their ability to be treated mathematically. So, you know, certain phenomena are amenable to mathematical description and they attract rich mathematical theories and so you know science evolves towards areas where maths can be successfully applied in that so, sense it puts the focus on us as as beings that evidently the well, way the, the way we function works yes. with mathematics and well, so we the, tend to put mathematical explanations onto things is that well the, it would be it would be the idea would be that it's the selection of topics mm. that creates the impression of mathematics unreasonable effectiveness so you know, the fact is most areas of, inquir- of human inquiry are not mathematical mm. the ma- because the, ma- the vast majority of the phenomena of human experience aren't amenable to mathematical description. So morality, art, aesthetics, literature, psychology, uh, human relationships, economics, politics, um, international relations, none of these phenomena are amenable to mathematical description. So mathematics actually has you know, quite significant limits to its power. Now, of course, um, if that kind of selection effect is at work here, that wouldn't be enough to explain, of course, why math supplies to the extent that it does. Mm. So you'd still be left with the question as to why math supplies at all. But it might go some way towards undermining the claim that mathematics is unreasonably effective. You know, okay. if the applicability of maths is recognized as actually being rather limited, then those cases where it does apply might lose their aura of mystery or, or miraculousness. And, mm. you, and if, you know, if you think about the number of possible questions that human beings can ask, the number that are actually tractable with science and mathematics is, va- is a vanishingly small percentage. 
Well, um, I'd be interested in really just letting you guys sort of chat this out a bit at this point. Um, Bill, any, any responses to, to both those points that, that, uh, that, that Daniel makes there? Well, he makes a good point about the limited applicability of mathematics. You don't have mathematical theories of literature or politics or sociology uh, or the stock market uh, even. Um, so that's certainly true. But I guess, to my mind, that just doesn't go any distance toward resolving the problem of the fact that mathematics is applicable to the physical sciences in this extraordinary way that's so fundamental. I, I, I'm not, somehow I'm just not troubled by the fact that there aren't mathematical theories of literature or politics, but the fact that the world, the physical world, should be invested with this mathematical structure does seem to me to cry out for explanation. It's not just quantum mechanics that Daniel mentioned, but also that other twin pillar of contemporary physics, uh, relativity theory, that is mathematical. When Einstein was struggling to formulate his general theory of relativity, he came to a blocking point where he couldn't go any farther until he went to a professional mathematician who taught him tensor calculus. And it was only after mastering tensor calculus that Einstein was then able to make advance and finally come to formulate his general theory of relativity, which is the theory of the gravitational field. So it's just so important, it's so fundamental to science and technology and that, that governs all of our lives that I, I just don't think it's can be pushed aside by saying that there aren't mathematical theories in other fields like the humanities. But but Daniel says we sort of tend to select for um, as it were the the fact that we we can do maths with that. So we kind of tend to select things that that work along those lines. And and whether there's any kind of sense in which maybe we. I don't know. You, you explain it, Daniel, because I'm probably doing a bad job of it. Any response to what, what Bill's saying there? Well, I mean, just to amplify what I was trying to say before, I mean, the, the, another consideration would be that, 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 that um, there's, a, a large, there's a large proportion of modern mathematics, such as abstract algebras, um, pathological functions, transfinite numbers, and so on, which have absolutely no straightforward application in the real world at all. The fact is that um, you know, a lot of mathematics is inapplicable. Now, if you're taking, taking note of that as well, of the, of the reduced level of the effectiveness of maths might uh, remove the appearance of the miraculous. I mean, we're also perhaps prone to forget the many failed predictions, um, you know, often um, forgetting failed predictions make success when you achieve it seem more surprising. So, um, you know, if you're, you're, th- you're thinking about this, a phenomenon which is familiar to all of us, is you're thinking about a friend and all of a sudden the telephone rings and it's your friend mm. and you find this to be a remarkable coincidence. Um, what makes it seem remarkable is that you're, you know, you're, you're forgetting the multitude of occasions when you've been thinking about your friend and the phone hasn't rung. Sure. So uh, analogously in the case of applied mathematics, it's, you know, it could be our forgetfulness of its many failures. That is, you know, how much trial and error is actually involved in finding the right mathematical model for a given natural phenomenon that creates the impression of unreasonable effectiveness. I mean, to make, to make an assessment of, of how unreasonable the effectiveness of maths really is, we'd need to know, you know, how many cases of mathematical concepts um, you know, devised for purely mathematical purposes are never successfully applied, and we and we need to know how many predictions in physics based on pure mathematics turn out to be accurate. I mean, perhaps it's the case that the number of uh, unsuccessful mathematical models, that is, models that fail to apply, are far more numerous than the successful ones. Okay. If that, if that yeah. were the case, then the applicability of maths wouldn't be at all surprising. Rather, you know, just like with any sufficiently large sample, any outrageous thing is going to happen. Bill? To say that the physical world instantiates a mathematical structure isn't to say that there are not alternative mathematical structures that it could have instantiated instead. Uh, I think that is, in fact, part of the mystery of that it requires explanation. Um, I mentioned 
the um, general theory of relativity. Well, you can have, as is well known, various space-time geometries. Uh, on a simplest level, you could have a Euclidean geometry where space-time is flat, like a, a plane. Or you could have a spherical or curved a geometry like the surface of a sphere, or you could have a saddle-shaped um, sort of geometry, and these will have uh, different implications in different structures. And to say that the world uh, instantiates one of these mathematical structures is not to say that there aren't other possibilities. That That's part of the I think the mystery of why is it that the world does have the mathematical structure that it does. And again, the theist here would say that God is quite free to give the world the mathematical structure that he chooses it to have. He can build it on the mathematical model he has in mind. So he could have made a world with a Euclidean geometry, or he could have made one with a um, spherical geometry, but in any case, it's extraordinary, I think, that the world does exhibit this sort of mathematical structure. It, it, it didn't have to have it. Well, would you not say, though, that um, having a physical reality describable by some sort of mathematics would apply for any, any, any consistently operating physical reality? So, I mean, we can, imagine, we can imagine possible worlds in which the laws of nature are very different and um, so you can imagine a possible world, for example, in which the inverse square law um, is the, just a square law or the, it's the inverse cubed law. I mean, maths would still be able to describe this. Um, so maths would still apply because maths is necessary and so is the same across all possible worlds. So we can imagine a possible world in which the laws of nature are very different, but nevertheless, maths is gonna, going to apply. So as long as you have a, a physical system which is consistent, then some kind of mathematics is going to apply, surely. I mean, unless you have a completely chaotic universe, then I think it's going to be unsurprising that some sort of mathematics is going to apply to it. Well, I think that that is true with regard to what you said earlier, Daniel, about low-level Mathematics, for example, the truths of elementary arithmetic are things that would be logically necessary and would apply in any possible world. Or I was recently reading a book by one mathematical realist who gives the example of the mathematician Euler and his proof that uh, the bridges in Königsberg in Prussia could not all be traversed by only crossing each one one time. You would have to go over one of the bridges twice in order to traverse all the bridges. And the author was pointing out this is a mathematical necessity. Everyone in Königsberg was aware of this truth, but Euler provided a mathematical proof of this. Well, now, these kinds of mathematical truths or structures wouldn't be mysterious because they're metaphysically necessary. But as Daniel says, when you get into higher-level mathematics, like my example of m different geometries, for example, or, or general theory of relativity or quantum mechanics, there there isn't any sort of metaphysical necessity that the world has to exhibit these sort of structures. And so, again, the naturalist, it seems to me, is just sort of left saying that this is a, a happy coincidence, which really isn't explanatory at all. Yeah, do you want to come back on that, Daniel? I mean, is is what you're saying, Daniel, that that even at the higher level types of you know mathematics and, and the physics it describes and so on, that well, you could still have another possible world in which there might be a, a different set of physics and and uh, would would be existent, but we would come up with a maths that would describe that, if you like. Is well, that what I'm getting from you? Well, yes. I mean, standardly, mathematical truths are taken to be necessary truths, and one way of expressing that is to say that they are true in all possible worlds. So in all possible worlds, 2 plus 3 equals 5. Mm -hmm. um, laws of nature, by contrast, are plausibly contingent. That's to say that they vary across possible worlds. So we can imagine worlds in which the laws of nature are radically different from the way they are in the actual world. Now, I mean, even if the laws of nature are different in other possible worlds, arguably maths is still going to apply. So, 
you know, the example I used before was the inverse square law. If you have a world in which the inverse square law is actually the inverse cubed law, well, there's no reason why maths is not going to be able to describe that. It, because it seems that for any physical reality that's describable by some sort of mathematics, um, it, well, it's going to be the case that any physical reality is describable by some sort of mathematics if that physical reality is consistently operating in some way. Because maths applies in all possible worlds, the effectiveness of maths is, is in effect, unsurprising. Okay. Bill, so I, I'm, I'm, you'll have to help me here because I may be struggling to keep up. But, but the, the effectiveness of mathematics is unsurprising if mathematics holds in all possible worlds, I think, is, is, is where Daniel's coming from here. So, so what's your response well, on that? I, I guess the question here would be, is must the physical world, by metaphysical necessity, exhibit the sort of structure that it has. And I think we both recognize that no, it doesn't. Uh, It's contingent that the mathematical world, or rather that the physical world, would instantiate the particular mathematical structure that it does. And so I'm wanting to say, what's the explanation of that? And I think Daniel seems content to simply say, well, it's just as good as any other and so there just isn't really anything here to be explained is that the case daniel well um i mean i'd want to come back to the question of whether god provides an adequate explanation if we accept if we accept the claim that the effectiveness of maths really is surprising then the question arises as to whether positing god constitutes Mm. an adequate explanation for Mm. the phenomenon Mm. i mean um, I mean, one thing you look for in a good explanation is testability or specific predictions so that you can you can go out and see whether those predictions are true or false. So the question would be, well, are there any specific predictions that come out of positing God as an explanation for the effectiveness of, of maths? Well, I don't think there are. I mean, because God is omnipotent, he can do anything. And because he's also mysterious in his... You know, purposes are unfathomable and so on. Literally, any observed state of affairs is consistent with the hypothesis. I mean, he's he's omnipotent, so there's nothing he can't do. So the range of possible actions that he might perform or you know, changes in the material world that he might affect aren't constrained by what he's capable of doing. Mm. But, you know, nor can we say that the range of possible actions that he might perform or events that he would allow to occur is constrained by... His nature, because his nature is unfathomable. Unfathomable. So, you know, even if we even if we say that his nature is not unfathomable, and that we know, for example, that he's morally perfect or all loving, and so will only allow things to happen that are good for us. Well, that's. I mean, that's still compatible with just about any observed state of affairs, because it will always be possible to say that he allowed this instance of, I don't know, apparently gratuitous suffering for reasons that are inaccessible to us. We'll, 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 we'll come back to that as well. But, but OK, Bill, so God as an explanation, we, we've come back to this and, and we find this popping up, I think, a lot of the time um, in, in other areas of, of, of philosophy, of religion and science as well. But, um, yeah, so, so is, could, could, is God just, as we say, a catch-all, uh, a God of the gaps or, or something like that where, where we're not really dealing with an explanation? It's too vague at some level, says Daniel. Yeah, I don't think that's the case. Now, it's true, I can't think of any sort of predictions that one might make, but this isn't being offered as an empirical hypothesis. This is a metaphysical explanation. This is an exercise in metaphysical reasoning to try to find uh, a good explanation for why the physical world has the mathematical structure that it does. And here it seems to me that the inference is one that we're very familiar with in everyday experience. Namely, we understand products that are the result of human intelligent design and execution. Um, I mentioned Philo of Alexandria earlier, who uh, argued for this with respect to God's creation of the physical world. He gives the example of an architect building a city. he plans it out in his mind first, 
uh, draws up his blueprints, and then he directs those who build the city to construct it according to what the architect had in mind. This is a familiar sort of activity that we're, we're all acquainted with. And so with respect to the universe, unless you're just close to theism, which is a different issue, it seems to me that this is a very familiar sort of explanation that we should be sure. open to. I mean, essentially, it's it's an inference to a, a designer. Um, we make that inference. Well, that's say, why I said it's really sort of yeah. an instance of the fine-tuning sure, argument. Sure, yeah. uh, it's the fine-tuning of the physical world uh, on this mathematical structure. And so it is a sort of design argument. It's a, an argument for an intelligent mind behind the cosmos sure um daniel i mean you're, you're familiar obviously with with the, this idea of of um the argument from design and so on which which if you like the this argument is a is a form of um i mean bill says but this is a metaphysical explanation yeah. ultimately so it's not open to the kind of empirical results type of explanation that that you're looking for um because in the end uh, at one level, it's hard to see how you would get that for mathematics, which is so fundamental to the structure of the universe at one level. It's hard to say how you would um, give an explanation that, that is testable, repeatable, and all those other things we like in empirical sciences. Well, okay, so I take Bill's point about metaphysical explanation um, not necessarily being subject to the same kinds of um, requirements as ordinary empirical explanations. So the idea is that metaphysical explanations... Shouldn't, we shouldn't expect metaphysical explanations to issue in empirical predictions. And I'm not sure exactly why that's supposed to be the case, why we shouldn't expect metaphysical facts to uh, have empirical uh, consequences or effects. But, um, I mean, so surely it's got to be the case that a, good ex- that a metaphysical explanation uh, must be consistent with what else we know, with our background knowledge. I mean, that would be another hallmark of... Um, a good explanation that it's consistent with our background knowledge mm. that is with what else we already know so i mean a question that i would want to ask then is well is theism uh consistent with <clears throat> our background knowledge well as far as we know um <clears throat> affecting changes in the physical universe requires having a body so you know seeking to explain the mathematical structure of the physical world in terms of the creative designs of an unembodied mind is you know, arguably inconsistent with this piece of background knowledge. I mean, indeed, the, the very idea of an unembodied mind is arguably inconsistent with a, our background knowledge that having a mind requires having a brain. Um, I mean, I wouldn't want to completely rule out the possibility that some form of substance dualism is true, so human beings are a composite of a physical and a non-physical uh, component of minds or consciousness being non-physical. I wouldn't want to rule out the possibility that that's true because we really have... You know, very little understanding of what sure. the relationship is between consciousness and the brain. But one's, one's inclined to say that it seems obvious that uh, consciousness depends on the brain. You know, using brain mm. scanning, we can obtain one-to-one mapping of states of consciousness and states of the brain, or we can, we can find correlations between states of consciousness and states of the brain. And, of course, we don't really know anything about the relationship between consciousness and the brain from, from, from mm. the existence of these correlations. But it certainly looks like there is a very close empirical okay. uh, dependency of states of consciousness on states of the brain. So, in other words, it looks like to have states of consciousness, you've got to have a brain. Well, well let's, let's get a quick, quick response from Bill before we have to go to another break and, and start to wrap things up. Well, I would say up. just very quickly that that isn't an objection to the argument from the applicability of mathematics that's an objection to theism, period. Um, and of course, if you're not open to theism, then th- this isn't going to be an acceptable explanation to a person. So th- this question throws the debate into a quite wider arena uh, that isn't really about this argument in particular, but about the coherence of theism, period. Sure. Uh, in that sense, I mean, Daniel, are you? If we took, say, God out of it and just talked about design, would you be kind of happier to to say yes? Design seems to be um, a valid explanation for the effectiveness of mathematics. Uh, well, I suppose one issue, yeah, one issue I, I would have with with the argument, as Bill has presented it in the past, is that the conclusion of the argument is that God exists. Now, um, 
the effectiveness of maths, I don't think, gives us any particular reason to suppose that there exists a benevolent God or a God who has any interest in human beings at all. And the hypothesis that there exists a benevolent creator, you know, given the data, the existence of tsunamis and child cancer and gas chambers and things like that, it looks spectacularly unlikely. So I think you know, the conclusion God exists, if by God we mean the Christian God or the God of traditional monotheism, then I don't think the conclusion follows at all. So okay. I think if, well, you know, well, at the very least, the, the, the argument seems to support a very minimal conception of, of God as, as a designer, not the God of traditional monotheism. Just, just a quick response, Bill, and then we'll go to a break. Well, I'd agree that it uh, is part of a cumulative case for theism, and it doesn't say anything about the moral qualities of this cosmic um, mind. Uh, so that's true. But again, that is not an objection to this argument. That throws the debate into a much wider arena where we talk about the problem of evil, talk about mind-body dualism and, and things of that sort. And those are those are yeah. different issues. And in a sense, that's true of many arguments, the argument from fine-tuning um, uh, and others that you could, the ontological argument, they don't obviously get you to the Trinitarian, full-blooded Christian God, but they, they do, as it were, provide evidence, as far as you're concerned, Bill, for, for a creator at the very least and uh, the concept of, of a, of a yeah, God. Yeah, this would give us evidence for an incredibly intelligent, if not omniscient, mind that is enormously powerful behind the con cosmos, a sort of creator and designer of sure. the cosmos of in incomprehensible intelligence and power. We're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll come back in just a moment's time to finish up this conversation. We're talking about the uncanny effectiveness of mathematics. Does it provide evidence for God? My guests today on the program, William Lane Craig and Daniel Kame. It's been a really interesting discussion today on the programme as we've asked whether the, uh, the applicability of mathematics provides evidence for God. Does uh, maths plus effectiveness equal God, I suppose, is another way you could, you could put this question. But um, uh, one thing that, that struck me when I was just looking into this in advance of, of hosting today's programme, Bill, was that I've heard it said that the very, if you like, birth of modern science as we know it to, to some extent owed, owed itself to a theistic, a Christian view of the universe that expected to find law-like regularity in the universe. Um, is that a fair assessment? Um, and do, how does that play into this, this particular argument? Well, I'm not a historian of science, um, but I know that people like Alfred North Whitehead have said and believed that modern science was birthed in the context of Western culture as opposed to the Orient or Africa, because of the Christian theological commitment to the rationality of the physical world, that the physical world does exhibit this rational structure, which would include mathematics, and is therefore amenable to rational exploration and discovery. And that is part of the reason that science was born and flourished within the West. Hmm. I, I mean, let's come to you, Daniel. And, and um, obviously, Bill has said in, in that last section that he's, he's not saying this argument in any way gets us to the full-blooded Christian view of God, but it's part of a cumulative argument. Um, what, what's your, your take on this then? I mean, it sounds like you're, you're willing to almost, as you said, see some evidence here for, for some kind of deism, obviously you don't see that as getting you close to you know bill's view of of god fleshed out but but it sounds like to me you're not exactly kind of kicking and screaming against his argument you, you you've got some openness to it as 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 design or, or or some kind of mind being potentially an explanation for it well i wouldn't want to categorically rule it out no i mean i, I mean i fully accept that there's there's a very uh deep puzzle here um I mean, there's also a problem here to do with the role that um, aesthetic considerations play in the development of mathematical theories, which which um, renders the problem even more puzzling. I mean, scientists and philosophers often um, invoke aesthetic considerations to help decide between 
two theories that are empirically equivalent. So, you know, scientists will prefer a theory that's more simple or elegant to a theory that has the same degree of empirical support, but which lacks the simplicity and elegance of the rival theory. Um, now, you know, there's a problem here as to why there should be any kind of relationship between aesthetic considerations and the um, epistemic worth of a theory. A theory. Now, that's, that's puzzling enough. Mm. Aesthetics plays an even more puzzling role in the problem of the um, unreasonable effectiveness of maths, because in maths, aesthetic considerations seem often to be responsible for the development of mathematical theories themselves. And it's these mathematical theories in turn which, you know, then play a very crucial role in the discovery of our best scientific theories. Mm. So, you know, new empirical phenomena are discovered via mathematical uh, models which were devised to satisfy purely aesthetic desiderata. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't based on any experimental observations. For example, that Dirac was able to predict the existence of antimatter. Now, that that is these kinds of facts about the applicability of maths to the physical world do look um, uh, extremely mysterious. Um, I mean, you, you use the word mysterious. I mean, obviously, very often I, I hear mathematicians and physicists talk about the, the beauty of mathematics. And, and in that sense, yes, it's almost an aesthetic appeal, isn't it, to the, the nature of these theories and, and the way they all map together and, and hold together in, in such a, quote unquote, beautiful way. And that seems to, as you say, lend a lot of um, the, the weight behind why, why we believe these theories and, and we, we invest so much in them. You say they're mysterious in that sense um, because because well I don't know because it's it somehow does that mysteriousness point to something beyond itself or is that just a mis- mystery that we kind of well, take as a brute it's, fact it's, of the universe? A, well, it can be viewed at this stage as an unsolved problem. I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've 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 marshaled a number of possible sort of naturalistic psychological explanations as to why things appear, why the effectiveness of mathematics appears so remarkable um i'm not supposed i'm not suggesting that any of those psychological explanations actually fully adequately explains the effectiveness of mathematics but i think it would be premature to rule out the possibility of a purely naturalistic or scientific explanation there doesn't seem to me to be any you know in principle reason why there couldn't be a naturalistic explanation that one must you know have recourse to to god in mm. order to explain the effectiveness okay. of maths um, let's uh, come to you, Bill. Then, just as we start to close out the program, um, we, we haven't, we don't need to rule God in. We shouldn't rule out other possible explanations down the line. So, at this point, for you, is God simply the best explanation on the table? I suppose, uh, uh, as as we know about maths. Honestly, uh, Justin. Honestly, I think he's the only explanation on the table. I I, I don't see what the competing naturalistic hypotheses are um and and daniel's point about the aesthetic aspects of the physical world is a very interesting one that i hadn't even thought to draw into the discussion but is certainly relevant here sometimes uh scientists will be very dissatisfied with the theory because they say it's too ugly Mm. to be true uh and are guided by these um qualities of um, or criteria of, of elegance and simplicity and so forth in the quest for the right mathematical theory. So, uh, and in terms of naturalism, I think here it's, what makes it so difficult for naturalism to give an explanation, even in principle, is that we are asking for an explanation of the entire natural realm. Why does the, the whole physical universe instantiate this mathematical structure and there can't be anything about it that explains itself so it's very difficult to see how there could be any naturalistic explanation about why nature is mathematical you need something transcendent we're gonna have to draw a close um daniel it's been really good to have you on um and anything you'd suggest to people who want to look into this for themselves i mean i know it's an area that that because i invited you on you started to look into in a, in a bit more depth yourself and 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 where where people could take it next if they're interested yeah well i could recommend um uh the, the writings of um quine and putnam villard van orman quine and hillary putnam who were two 
very important 20th century philosophers who wrote a lot about the supposed indispensability of mathematics for science. Um, they support a, a realist view of the, of the uh, nature of mathematical objects. Um, and then there was a very interesting book which was written largely in response to Quine and Putnam's indispensability thesis by uh, a philosopher named Hartree Field, um, a book called Science Without Numbers, which purports to show that, in fact, mathematics isn't indispensable to science and that um, scientific theories can be reformulated in terms which are completely purged of all mathematical vocabulary. And he does mm. this with the, with the example of Newtonian gravitational theory. Daniel, it's been great having you on. Thank you for, for being on the programme today. Thank you. Uh, it's been, been really interesting to get your, your input on today. Bill, thanks also. And um, when can we expect to see the, the fruits of all your labours when it comes to your um, investigations into these uh, these realms of mathematics and, and uh, realist and anti-realist views of reality and so on? Well, let me say before I answer that question mm. that we mustn't confuse the indispensability of mathematics with its applicability, as I said. Those mm. are two distinct issues. But I'll be in the UK in March uh, at the University of Birmingham, delivering the Cadbury Lectures on God and Abstract Objects. And so there'll be a whole week of lectures that would be open to the public uh, if you'd like to come and hear more about um, God and uh, these mathematical objects. Fantastic. Well, we, we can certainly look forward to that, Bill, and, uh, and hearing them, I'm sure, online once, once they've been uh, recorded. But uh, we look forward to that. In the meantime, thank you very much for coming on the programme, both gentlemen. It's been a, a really interesting area, one that certainly opened up a lot of interesting areas for me as, as a new interesting example of, a, of, a, of an area of uh, argumentation for the evidence of God. Uh, and if you want to find out more about my guest, uh, Daniel Kame is uh, from the University of Hull. You can find his um, his profile page on their website. And William Lane Craig, of course, uh, heads up the ministry Reasonable Faith, reasonablefaith.org, for more examples and uh, articles, blog posts, uh, the podcast, and much more besides. Uh, thanks, gentlemen, for, for a fantastic uh, discussion, and I wish you all the very best for 2015. Thank thanks very much, John. Well, I hope you enjoyed that classic replay from 2015. William Lane Craig and Daniel Kame debating whether the applicability of mathematics points to God. I hope your head's not hurting too much after that one. And before we go, a reminder that at the end of this week, you can watch the new Big Conversation Season 5 episode, Episode 3, early if you sign up at thebigconversation.show. It's Philip Ball and Nick Spencer debating what does it mean to be human can science and religion tell us the answer? So if you want early access to that and more content, more bonus videos and ebooks, sign up at thebigconversation.show. Time for another classic replay of Unbelievable. Unbelievable.